if you would grab your Bible or open up your app or whatever you want to do, Matthew 15. And once you're there, would you stand as we give reverence to the reading of God's word? Verse 1, Matthew 15, verse 1. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders, for they do not wash their hands when they eat? It's just kind of funny. It's five days from Jerusalem to where Jesus is at. They travel for five days and they ask, why aren't you guys washing your hands? It's funny to me. He answered them. Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your traditions? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me as given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Father, I thank you for the words of Jesus. I pray that they would resonate with your people this day. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. So there's a study that I like. I've mentioned it before. And it was done, oh, 20 years ago or so. These two scientists, Gary Hamill and C.K. Pralahad, they took this room. In the middle of the room, they put a pole. And at the top of the pole, they put some bananas. And then they took four monkeys. And they took these four monkeys. And they put them in this room with this pole with the bananas at the top. And so the four monkeys kind of looked around. They greeted each other. And then one of the monkeys saw the bananas and thought, I'm hungry. He climbs up the pole, and right when he's about to grab one of the monkeys, these jets of water come out of the top of the pole and just douse the monkey with water. So he runs down the pole without getting a, getting a banana. Well, one by one, all four monkeys try it once, twice, three times. After the third time, the monkeys give up. That's it. You're not getting those bananas. So then, the scientists removed one of the original four monkeys, and they put in a brand new monkey. And so the brand new monkey is now in there. He looks around, looks at the other monkeys, sees the pole with the bananas, goes over to the pole to try to climb the pole to get to the bananas. Before he can climb, the three original monkeys grab that monkey and start shrieking at him and will not let him climb the pole. So he stops, waits a little bit, tries it again. The three original monkeys grab him again, shrieking, don't do it, don't do it. And then the monkey finally gives up. So then they do it a second time. They take a second of the original monkeys. They pull him out. They put in a brand new second monkey. So this second monkey's in there. He's looking around. Finally sees the bananas, sees the pole, starts to climb the pole. The original two monkeys and the new monkey grab that second new monkey and will not let him climb the pole. All right? And so 
Same thing happens, finally he gives up. So eventually, here's what happens. All four of the original monkeys are pulled out and four new monkeys are in there. So it ends with four monkeys that are in a room with a pole with a bunch of bananas, but they will not climb that pole and they have no idea why they shouldn't. Aren't we just like monkeys? Aren't there things that like we don't do and we really have no idea why or things that we do do and we really wonder why do we do that? Don't we do that? Why do we sing songs in church? Ever thought about that? Why why do we sing? Jesus gives lots of teachings throughout the gospel of Matthew. We see him. He, He doesn't sing though. Where else do we do this thing? What CEO grabs a bunch of people and brings them together on the board and is like, hey, before we get to our agenda, I'd like to sing a song. <laughs> Stairway to heaven, words are in your agenda. Join with me when you can. <laughs> right? They'd be like, what in the world? This dude's nuts. I'm not doing that. Why do we meet and greet? Imagine you're at the football game and at halftime someone says, hey, stand up and greet 10 people you didn't come with. He'd be like, forget you. I ain't doing that. Like we do some things. Even more serious, why do we have baptism classes? Where do you find that in the Bible? You can't. In fact, the book of Acts over and over ties together conversion and baptism. Repent and be baptized. It says it over and over and over. There's, there, where did this come from? Where's that in the Bible? My title as pastor. That's not really a correct biblical term. The correct biblical term for my office is actually an elder. But for some reason, we have adopted pastor as my title. And I'm not going to fight that. I'm fine. But really, it's being a monkey in a room. How about calling a building a church? You know, the Bible never does that. What's the church? People. When the Bible talks about church, it's ecclesia in the Greek. It's always, it means a called out people. It doesn't mean a building. And yet we use that term. So we have all kind of the same thing that these guys do. So what Jesus is going to do here is he's going to try to get a monkey off their back. Like, I'm going to try to clear this thing up for you. Uh, In order to get there, I have to explain to you what's happening culturally 2,000 years ago. And then I'm going to try to apply it to us today, all right? So verse 1 says this. The Pharisees and scribes come to Jesus. I mentioned it's a five-day journey from Jerusalem to where Jesus is at up in Galilee. So they walk for five days to come get Jesus. They've got an agenda. They've been watching him. The one thing they can find is this. Bro, your, your disciples don't wash their hands when they eat. Now, is washing your hands a good idea? Sure. Right? I have five kids. I have two horses three pigs, six chickens, two goats, and a duck. I like clean hands. My favorite song is, give us clean hands, right? I don't want to eat goat droppings. So I'm all for washing hands, all right? In fact, much of the Jewish system of kosher and cleanliness is what kept them from getting like the bad plagues of the Middle Ages. So good idea. Right? So the Mishnah, what's the Mishnah was? It, it, it's, a, it's a word that means oral law. So they had the written law, the Old Testament, if you would. But then there was this kind of oral law that Jesus calls them the traditions. They call them the traditions of the elders. These kind of traditions that had grown up. There's a certain way you washed your hands and all this kind of stuff. And it wasn't a bad thing. But when Jesus mentions it, 
or when rather the scribes and Pharisees mention it, how does Jesus respond? Look at verses 3 through verse 9. Is that overacting? Hey, your disciples don't wash their hands. Oh, yeah? You forked-tongued. Mom and dad dishonoring. Tradition-keeping. Hypocrites who break the commands of God. Is that a little overreaction? Look at verse 12. Then the disciples came to him and said, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? (laughs) You mean when I called them forked tongued, mom and dad dishonoring, commandment breaking, vain worshiping people? They were offended at that? Imagine that. Okay, a little Bible lesson for you. When you see something that seems like an overreaction, pay attention, right? Husbands, you know this. You come home, yeah, everyone's laughing without even having to say anything. You come home and there's like a towel on the floor. You're like, hey, somebody left their towel on the floor. And your wife responds like this. I am so sick and tired of cleaning up this house. I'm sick and tired of babysitting a bunch of ice cream eating slobs. Is that about the towel? Oh, no. You do what all husbands do. You pick it up and you back out of the room. All right. Okay. Right? So Jesus here is telling us, pay attention. This is more than just an issue of washing hands. There's something else happening here, okay? Two things are the, is what's happening. Number one, this is not Jesus's first rodeo with this crew. In um, chapters eight and nine, Jesus is having these interactions with this same crew, and they get mad at him because he's hanging out with the wrong people. But you're hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. Man, those are, those are the wrong kind of people. And then in chapter 12, they get mad about the Sabbath. And then they get mad at Jesus about healing some of the Sabbath. And at this point, this crew, they want to do one thing to Jesus. And guess what it is? They want to kill him. And they're looking for evidence to kill him. So imagine you know someone's going to, wants to kill you and you come to church and they're like, hey, what's up? How are you going to react to them? All right? There's going to be a little bit, a little bit of tension there. But secondly, Jesus calls them, after he explains this thing, he calls them, verse 7, you hypocrites. You know what hypocrites mean? It was a term that was used all the time because it was uh, of actors. Actors 2,000 years ago, they would play multiple roles in a show, and they would just put on a different mask, a very expressive mask that would show, oh, this is the kind of character they are. That's this term. So what Jesus is saying is this, you guys are players. You guys are actors. It'd be like coming to church and seeing somebody saying, hey, praise the Lord, while you know they're having an affair on their wife. You'd be like, you're a hypocrite. Maybe like someone that's on the prayer team and you know they're embezzling money from their employer. Hey, you're a hypocrite, okay? So Jesus says that's what you're doing. Now, how were they doing that? He explains it. I got to unpack it a little bit. Here's what had happened at this time. Moses had given them the 10 commandments. You guys know those? Pretty simple. 1,400 years before, 10 commandments. The fourth commandment is this, honor your mom and dad. 
and it'll go well with you. And that seems like a pretty simple command, doesn't it? Why does it even have to be commanded? Here are two people that gave up their life, their money, their time for their kids. And yet God has to command it. Because guess what? It's a little bit harder. There's so much of this blame my dad, blame my mom because my life isn't good. My parents were too strict. My parents weren't strict enough. My dad didn't hug me enough. Here's what God is saying. Listen, you can choose your spouse. You can choose where you want to live. You can choose the kind of job you want to have. You can choose the kind of car you want to drive. But you're not going to be able to choose your parents. And as a way that you can learn to honor people that maybe you don't see as perfect because you're going to face that all through your life. And if you learn it from your parents, it's going to go well with you. It's a command. So Moses had given this command. Well, there was separate to this, the oral law I mentioned, it's the Mishnah. And it it had kind of grown up and it had this real power at this point. And part of the oral law said this, you could dedicate your stuff to God. It's called korban. It meant this, everything in my house, my car, my house, my stereo, all of it is dedicated to God. When you did that, what that meant was no one could borrow it from you. Sounds like a pretty good rule. If you have poor relatives, it's a great rule. So what that meant was, so you say, my stuff is korban. It's all dedicated to God. You still use it. You still live in the house. You still spend it. You still eat it, but it is dedicated to God. So your mom and dad come over and they're like, son, I see you've got 1,400 gold bars here. Can I borrow just one to get my, your mom out of indentured slavery? Can do it because it is korban, been given to God. It's not really mine anymore. It's been given to God. That's what Jesus is talking about right here. He's saying that tradition now makes you a commandment breaker. Which one's supposed to have priority? God's commands, no doubt. Now, if you're sitting there right now thinking, oh, those terrible people, you read the Bible wrong. Because here's what Matthew does so much. He comes up beside us and is like, hey, let me show you a story. You're like, man, that is so bad. Yeah, it's you. That's really what Matthew does. Because don't we do the same thing? I'll give you an example. I know people that have said, hey, Matt, I'm building this house and it's big and it has a big living room and all this kind of stuff. And the reason why I'm building a McMansion is because I want to have home groups and Bible studies. And I want to have missionaries come stay at my house. And man, that's a great thing. But guess what? They don't have home groups. And missionaries are not staying at their house. It's almost the same idea, isn't it? But I'm no better than that. When I bought my Volkswagen bus, my justification to my wife and to some people was this. It's going to be such a great tool to start conversations about Jesus. Well, guess what? The only conversations my Volkswagen bus start are about how to buy and sell marijuana. That's it. <laughs> so honestly, I'm the same boat. I'm like, oh, okay. No, I don't want to buy any. No, I don't have any for sale. I'm sorry. We do very similar things. We can be hypocrites. We put on this show. Maybe the most profound one I've seen in the last year was this. When my wife and I were in Israel, we noticed these people. They're Orthodox Jews. You cannot miss them. They dress in black. 
Um, they have these tassels coming on the bottom of their garments. They wear these hats. Have you seen the hats they wear? They're, they're, they're these big, round, furry hats. So it looks like a beaver made its dam on the top of your head and just laying there. I mean, they're the craziest. I wanted one. They won't sell them to you. So just these massive, like, furry hats. So you know them right away. When they walk down the street, these Orthodox Jews, they will not make eye contact with a woman. So they just turn away. They're, like, hitting into people. doesn't matter. Boom, boom, boom. So you just very obvious, very outward, all right? Um, they go. They, they keep the Sabbath. They're commandment keepers. But here's what fascinated me. We had this guy, his name is Dan Sered. He works for Jews for Jesus. And um, he came and spoke to us and shared with us. And something he said fascinated me. I could not believe it. They have a young lady on staff, and her job is to work with prostitutes in Tel Aviv. In Israel, prostitution is legal. So she works with these prostitutes, helps them, um, just wants them to come know, to know Jesus. So that's kind of her job. She said this. The number one clientele for prostitutes are, guess who? Orthodox Jews. Oh, they look it. They won't look at a woman walking down the street, but man, number one clientele for prostitutes. It's this same idea. It's, hey, that's hypocrites. All right? Jesus here is hitting on the deep end of religion and Christianity. I had this conversation with a buddy. And he said, just a week ago, he said, there are two things that turn me and my crew off to Christianity. Number one, churches are always asking for money. Number two, hypocrites. People that outwardly, man, praise God, but inwardly, there's nothing there. Jesus is hitting at the deep end of the issue that very often people have with Christianity. Oh, you look outward it. You say all the right words, but man, your heart, your heart is far from us. Maybe here's an example that I, I think is prevalent in the church today because I see it in my heart. It's prayer. And I mean it like this. It's a religious thing that I do, but it's actually a religious thing that's just like korban. It's so I can keep my stuff. It's I meet somebody or I'm talking to somebody, and they share with me where they're at in life, and they're having difficulty, and they're having issues, and they share with me, and I know this, I could help them. Financially, I could help them. Talent-wise, I could help them. Experience-wise, I could help this person. But instead of actually engaging with them and helping them, guess what I do? Let me pray for you. And God is screaming at me, Matt, you be the answer. Matt, I've entrusted so much to you. Matt, I've given so much to you. Not so that you could heap it up and get more and more for yourself. I've entrusted it to you so you could invest it in this kingdom. Screaming at me, but otherwise, I'll just pray for you. We do it. We do it. So what's the issue? Well, Jesus hits the heart of it. It's verse 8. These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. It's lip service. Hey, I'll pray for you, but my heart really isn't into the kingdom or into obeying and being what God wants me to be. So much of the church is built around the outward show and the outward stuff, and so little of the church is really emphasizing the heart and transformation. I saw this firsthand. It was probably the most 
uh, vivid time I've seen it. I was in India, and we were second trip. We were going along this kind of coastal area, and we were sharing the gospel with people. And we came to this place. It was this, this stone aqueduct that went like 50 feet out into the ocean. It was really cool looking. And I asked, what is that? And Billy Graham Paulus, our guide, said, oh, that's a Hindu god. I said, really? Can we go out there? He said, yeah. So we, this whole crowd of us, we walked out on this little aqueduct thing out to the end. And at the end, there was this, it was about two feet tall, this stone kind of border, and it was hollow, and it went straight down, and you could see water at the bottom. And so we're just kind of sitting there talking. I was tired. So I sat down on this little border. And then someone says, well, where's the God? And Billy said, Matt's sitting on its head. <laughs> I was like, oh, <laughs> there you have it. And while we're out there, this fisherman, this old, he's probably 65, 70, this old fisherman comes walking out and he's going to make an offering to his God so that he fishes better. And the way he fished was he would swim a mile out into the ocean with this, he had this flipper thing. It was a piece of aluminum with a rubber strap that he put his hand in and he just kind of paddle his way out, take off, you know, strip down and paddle way out there. Uh, And he had this little glass thing and he he would somehow get two or three fish and sell them for like less than a buck. He did that every day. So um, he comes out there. He's like, what are all these white people doing? What's that dude sitting on my God? I'm going to kill him. So there's just kind of this little like, what's going on here? Uh, We share the gospel with him. He believes. And uh, I couldn't speak the language. It's Tamil. But you know how you can just see somebody's countenance changes? Like all of a sudden there's like this peace and there's just this glow. Man, he had it. And I just gave him a hug. I'm like, you know, the only thing I could do, hugged him. And then here's what happened. It broke my heart. Another guy, an Indian guy, starts talking with him and reaches into his little pocket there and there, he pulls out one rolled cigarette, hand rolled. And you see the guy just looking at the cigarette like, oh. And he takes a cigarette and he crushes it up and throws it away. And the man's countenance fell and it broke my heart because here's what we were doing. We were equating Jesus with not smoking. We are equating salvation with, hey, an outward, you don't smoke. Now, is smoking good or bad? It's probably bad. But this guy probably, here's this thing. He would go out, fish all day, and his one reward was to come back and smoke a cigarette. And we had told him, nope, Christianity is about not smoking cigarettes. I addressed this in a pastor's conference in India. There's 500 pastors. I happened to be teaching Romans 14. You want a great chapter? Read Romans 14. Romans 14 says, why are we involved in all this stuff? Why are we getting mad about the day people worship or what they choose to eat or if they choose to drink wine or not? Why are we doing that? Verse 17 says, the kingdom of God is not about those things. It's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's it. It's it's heart stuff, not outward stuff. And so I started teaching on this and I began by teaching and asking these 500 pastors. I said, is it wrong for a Christian to have a glass of wine with their pasta. I said, you absolutely cannot get drunk. I get that. Be not drunk with wine. Ephesians 5.18. No doubt. I'm not talking about being drunk. I'm saying a glass of wine with your pasta. All 500 said, yes, it's wrong. So I said, oh, this will be fun. I said, give me a verse. So they just started firing verses at me. Isaiah 5.11. And I showed, hey, listen, it's saying, Get drunk. It's not talking about having a glass of wine. That's getting drunk. And then they replied this way. The Bible, when it talks about wine, it actually means grape juice. So I said, oh, that's fascinating. Because Proverbs 23 uses this same word for wine about a guy who drank too much 
grape juice and was staring like a sailor. What's his deal? I've never heard grape juice doing that. And they're like, ooh, we don't like that. They got mad. <laughs> and so I said, okay, 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 forget that one. I said, can you be a Christian and can you smoke a cigarette? They said, oh, absolutely not. You cannot smoke a cigarette. I said, show me a verse. And they said, okay, your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost and you should not be breaking it with cigarettes. I said, okay, I, I, I will give you cigarette smoking is not good. But that's not what that verse is saying. I said, if you want to use that as justification for not smoking, then you had better not do anything unhealthy. You better not eat fat, fat food. You better not eat bacon. God forbid. You better not go to McDonald's. Then they got mad at me. <laughs> what? I said, that's not what that is saying. Someone who has a cigar or someone who happens to smoke a pipe, that's not what it's saying. It's not talking about that. I said, and, and I tried to explain to them. They actually got very mad at me. I tried to explain to them. It's not about outward stuff. It's about the heart. This is where it matters. God is much less concerned about what we accomplish and is much more concerned about what we are becoming. He is not about moral behavior. God wants kids whose hearts, verse 8, are close to him. That's what he wants. So Jesus comes unhinged because this is the core of the Bible, and this is the essence of the gospel. That's why he becomes unhinged. And it's nothing new. God had said this in the Old Testament. Read Amos 5. In Amos 5, God says this to the children of Israel. I hate it when you go to church. You know why he says that? Because you're worship me, worshiping me on Saturday, and on Sunday and Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, you're doing something else. You're being a hypocrite. You're being two-faced. And I hate it. Don't even come to church, he says. Don't even do it. Stay away. Okay, Matt. Well, what do we do? This text begs one question, doesn't it? It begs the question of, where's your heart at? As a believer, where's your heart? Is it an outward stuff to make people think you're something that you're really not? Or is your heart good and right and clean? I have a test, I dropped it earlier, that helps me, and I've given this before, it helps me determine where my heart is at. Is it the religion that got Jesus just incensed, or is it the grace that actually changes the way I am? So here are some questions you can ask yourself, okay? A religious heart says this, if we obey God, then he will love us. That's religion. A grace heart says, because God has loved us through Jesus, we can obey. Number two, a religious heart divides the world into good people like me that wash their hands and don't smoke cigarettes and bad people like them. That's what religion does. A grace heart says, no, the world is full of broken people that all need Jesus. Very different. A religious heart, trust in what I do to make me acceptable to God. A grace heart, trusts in the sinless, perfect life of Jesus. A religious heart, the goal is to get something from God. Health, wealth, prosperity, insight, power, control. It's really idolatry. 
And I'll impress him if I wash my hands right or if I act right. He'll be impressed and then he'll drop the blessings to me. A grace heart says the goal is Jesus. And he's already given himself to us. A religious heart sees difficulty in life as God punishing me. A grace heart sees difficulty as the way that this world shapes me to be more like Jesus. A religious heart leads to uncertainty. Did I do enough? Did I wash my hands enough? A grace heart is secure in the finished work of Jesus. A religious heart will lead to pride, look how good I am, or despair. I failed my own rules. Oh no, who will save me now? A grace heart has a humble, confident joy because they know Jesus is at work in, through, and for me. A religious heart is you come to a place like this and you care more about the length of someone's skirt than you do the condition of their heart. A grace heart says, how can I bless somebody today? I use that test on myself all the time because I can find myself going right where these guys did. It's about outward things. I have to help my kids all the time because my son, Elijah, thinks if you smoke cigarettes, you're done. I have to help him say, hey, man, we know that's unhealthy and we know that's probably not the best thing, but that does not mean they don't love Jesus. I have to help them, right? Constantly, because we all fall into this mentality. So my final point is this. If your heart is far away, how do you get it on fire? If your heart is cold, how do you get it reheated? Let me give you two things and then I'm done. Number one, you have to identify it. Jesus is harsh here, not because he does not love the scribes and Pharisees. He does. He is harsh for one reason. You know why? Look at your heart. Sometimes you have to say things real loud and real strong to break through a bunch of stuff so people then can evaluate, wow, that's me. That's what Jesus is doing right here. He's trying to break through and say, look at your heart. Look how you hurt your mom and dad. Look at that. Here's the good news. Hebrews 14, 4, 13 says this. All things are naked and open before him who we have to deal. You know what that means? God, God already knows. You're not hiding anything from God. Wherever the condition of your heart is, you're not hiding it from God. You can't hide things from God. Do you know that? It's like me trying to play hide and seek with Myron, my two-year-old. When it's my turn, he'll go look for me in his sock drawer. Dad, are you in here? Bro, I know I'm scrawny, but you know, I can't fit in that drawer. Maybe with your socks gone, I could, but not with all your socks in there. When it's his turn, he goes to the middle of the living room and throws a blanket over half of his body and is like giggling, dad will never find me here. Right? <laughs> this is such a great hiding spot. Mom, don't tell dad where I'm at. You're like, oh, come on. I'll go like change the oil and come back and he's still giggling. It's such a good spot. Dad still hasn't found me. Okay, that's trying to hide from God. It's just like that. But here's the best news about that. God knows the coldness of our heart. God knows the laziness of my character. God knows my deficiencies. Nothing surprises God. Whatever you did on Boatnik did not surprise God. He wasn't like, oh my goodness, I can't believe they did that. He knows it all. And the Bible says this. It's Romans 5, 9. 
that while we were yet sinners, Christ demonstrated his love for us in dying for us. That when we were our worst, God loved us. His love is unchanging and undying. Number one is you have to admit, my heart is far from you. You got to identify it. That's why Jesus is speaking strong words here. Identify the condition of your heart. And then number two, it follows it. You confess it. In 1 John 1, 9, it says this. If we will confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us of our sins and to, anybody know? Cleanse us. Cure that heart problem. Take care of it. You want the big story of the Bible? It's right here. The big story of the Bible is this. In Genesis 3, a snake coiled around every single person's heart. James James 3 puts it like this, that we actually, humanity sets hell on fire. Where'd the fires of hell come from? God didn't create. In the beginning, God created what? The heavens and the, there's no mention of hell. Who created hell? James 3 says, you and I do. We set hell on fire, that there is hell in our heart. And from Genesis 3 to Revelation 20, what God is trying to do is this. I'm getting the hell out of earth. And I want to start with you, Matt. I want to uncoil that snake off your heart and give you a heart that's different. Read the story of the Bible. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. I'm going to circumcise your heart. Why? So that you can then love God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul. I'm going to circumcise it. Circumcise means remove something. There's something around your heart right now that I've got to remove it, right? Psalm 51 says this, create in me a clean heart, renew in me a right spirit. Who does that work? God does it. Ezekiel 36, probably one of the most important texts when it comes to the new covenant. It says this, that God will sprinkle us with clean water and he'll remove my heart of stone and give me a heart of flesh that can feel and sense and can be renewed. It's God's greatest work. Psalm 139 says, search my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me on the path everlasting. This is the big story of the Bible that you and I as humanity after Genesis 3 have hell in us. It's in our heart. And the only way it gets removed is when we confess, God, help me. I don't want to be this way. I have these tendencies. Lord, I'm just like these Pharisees. Would you get the hell out of my heart? And he does that incredible, amazing work. It's called transformation. It's called metamorphosis in the Bible. It's the only way it works. Number one, you identify it. The stories in Matthew are not, hey, look at those idiots. The stories in Matthew are, hey, look at me. I'm right there. You identify it, and number two, you confess it. And God is the only one that changes the human heart. He's the only one. And when our heart is changed, the way that we act, it's, an, it's not hypocritical anymore. It's who I really am. And that's what God is after. Not behavioral modification, but becoming like Jesus. And it happens through identification and confession. So here's my offer, and then we're done. Some maybe need some prayer. Sometimes we need people to lay their hands on us and to pray for us 
Because there is a condition of heart that is so hard and so wrong and so off that it takes help. It's Galatians 6.1. It says exactly that, that we're supposed to be doing that work, laying hands on, praying, and there's great power in that. So maybe you feel like, you know what, my heart, it's just gotten a little cold. You know, my heart, it has some tendencies. You know, my heart is just like these guys. I'm constantly looking down on other people. I don't want to be that way anymore. Come up, get prayer. You can get prayer right over here. There'll be some elders and deacons and Titus 2 ladies and, and Priscilla helpers and just some, some people right here that just love to pray for you. Pray that God would do the work that only he can. I've identified it. Now, God, cleanse me. Create that clean heart. And number two is we offer baptisms every Sunday outside. And so maybe you're saying, you know what? I need to be baptized. I need that sprinkling of clean water. Romans puts it like this. It says when you go in these waters, something dies, and then there's this resurrection of newness of light. That what is dead in us, what is hell in us, can be washed away in these waters and that we can be resurrected with this new heart, this new life, and the power of God's spirit in a way that's incredible. That's what baptism does. It's that identification with the work of Jesus Christ on the cross for us so that the snake that's wrapped around our hearts can be killed. Isn't that the promise of Genesis 3.15? Right? That the serpent... The one who's coming will crush the serpent's head and he will bite the heel of that victor. That's Jesus. The cross, he was smitten on the cross, but he crushed the serpent's head. We go through that, if you would. We tangibly receive that in baptism, identifying with Jesus. So those offers are for you, prayer or baptism. And so, Father... Thank you for the message of Matthew. Forgive me where, Lord, I have traditional tendencies, where I look at people and judge them based on outward looks, outward actions, instead of trusting your incredible work that happens in the heart. I pray, Lord, for myself in areas where my character is falling behind. I pray that this day, Lord, those things would be exposed to me and that I would be quick to confess them to you, allowing you to cleanse me from them, allowing you to create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit in me, Lord. I pray that I would walk in that kind of mentality, trusting you'll both identify things and cleanse me from them. I pray that for every believer here at Edgewater, that we would walk in that kind of understanding, knowing that we cannot force change, but we can come to you, the one that's able to transform us, the one that's able to untangle the snake, the one that is able to get the hell out of us, and eventually we'll get the hell out of earth. Thank you for that. I pray for those, Lord, who need to die to themselves and live for Jesus this day. I pray that they would respond and that today would be the best day ever, a death day for them, where they are able to live, become alive to God, live in that beautiful new humanity that resonates with you, 
that we do things not because we have to, we do things because we love to, because our hearts have been changed and they've been made righteous and we behave that way because that's who we become. So bring those as well. For those of us who are going, Lord, may we this day not look to traditions, but may we listen to your son. When we pray, Lord, may it not be prayer to get out of something, but may it be prayer to volunteer for something like Isaiah. Here I am, send me. Use me. I'm the answer. May we be those kind of people this day, I pray. So go with us, anoint us, empower us. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, God bless you guys. Thank you.